There will now be an opportunity for silent prayer or meditation. Thank you. Please be seated. Honorable members, the only item on the today's order paper is questions addressed to the president. There are four supplementary questions on each question. Parties have given an indication of which questions their members wish to pose to supplementary questions. Adequate notice was given to parties for this purpose. This was done to facilitate participation of members who are connecting to the sitting through the virtual platform. The members who will pose supplementary questions will be recognized by the presiding officer. And in allocating opportunities for supplementary questions, the principle of fairness amongst others has been applied. If a member who is supposed to ask a supplementary question through virtual platform is unable to do so due to technological difficulties, the party whip on duty will be allowed uh, to ask the question on behalf of their member in the House. When all of the questions have been answered by the President, we will proceed to the next question on the paper. The first question has been asked by Honorable L.S. Makubele Mashele. I've been informed that the President will be answering questions through the virtual platform. Uh, Honorable President. Thank you, Deputy Speaker, Honorable Members. I welcome this opportunity, albeit a virtual way of answering questions. Honorable Deputy Speaker, the global coronavirus pandemic is both a national crisis and an economic crisis. As we have acted to protect the health and the lives of all our people, we've also had to limit the severe economic impact. Our economic response can be divided into three phases. The first phase began in mid-March when we declared the coronavirus pandemic as a national disaster. What we did included a broad range of measures to mitigate the worst effects of the pandemic on business, on communities and individuals. The measures included measures such as tax relief, the release of disaster relief funds, emergency procurement processes, wage support through the UIF, and funding to small businesses. Towards the end of April, we realized that this pandemic was having a much deeper effect negatively. It then led us to embark on the second phase of our economic response. 
was both economic as well as social. And this included a 500 billion support package to stabilize the economy and to protect jobs. But it was also meant to support our people who through their various economic activities were no longer earning an income. <clears throat> and this had to do with people in informal businesses, but it also included people who were getting social grants, but the social grants had become insufficient. It also included unemployed people in our country. And to that end, the measures that we implemented came up with temporary payments to social grant beneficiaries, a special COVID-19 grant of 350 rand a month for six months to the unemployed, and a loan guarantee scheme of 200 billion to support small and medium enterprise businesses whose turnover is, uh, was determined as well. It is worth noting that the 500 billion support package is worth around, I would say 10 to 11% of GDP, which is larger than equivalent support measures announced by other emerging markets and those countries that are in the G20. The third phase is a comprehensive economic strategy that will be aimed at driving the recovery of our economy as we emerge from the pandemic. Now, given the massive impact that the coronavirus is expected to have on jobs, our immediate task is to create employment. I've often said that we need to look at the post-COVID-19 economic landscape as being equivalent to a post-war economic landscape. So we have to do the extraordinary. And we will do this by expanding, embarking rather on a number of initiatives that will be aimed at creating jobs. And some of those will be expanding public employment, increasing investment in public infrastructure and services, and then enabling greater job creation by the private sector. Progress is being made within government to increase investment in infrastructure with several major projects that are ready for implementation. Next week, the presidency will be convening the Sustainable Infrastructure Development Symposium, which will bring together funders, policymakers, state-owned enterprises, academic and private sector people to look at the investment opportunities in infrastructure. We should see infrastructure investment as a mobilizer 
of, of growth. And we want to source money, significant investment from a number of sources, both private and public. And we see this as a significant part of the stimulus that our economy needs. This pandemic, Deputy Speaker, has highlighted the vital importance of the informal sector as well and of small businesses in meeting the basic needs of our people. This informal sector, which others describe as the second economy, in many ways has come to the fore in supporting the lives and livelihoods of our people during lockdown. And we now have a much better view of the landscape of the small and medium enterprise sector and the more informal part of it. Our program of economic recovery needs to provide greater support to these enterprises, which provide income and employment for many young people. At the same time, we will implement key reforms that support long-term growth. And these include measures to support building of energy capacity, reforms to improve port capacity, as well as the efficiency of our ports and the licensing of high demand spectrum. We've also been focused on the measures required to protect African economies and ensure that they effectively recover from the effects of the pandemic. In my capacity as chairperson of the AU, I have held several engagements with the leaders and institutions in the international community to call for a comprehensive economic package to provide economic relief to African economies. This package would need to include debt cancellation, debt standstill, as well as interest waivers, which will provide poorer countries the much needed fiscal space to deal with the economic ramifications of the virus. As I've announced, we've also appointed six AU envoys to solicit financial support for the continent from a number of uh, financial centers, G20 countries, international organizations, and many others. They have also made significant progress in mobilizing material support for African countries to respond to the pandemic. And to date, a total of 61 million dollars has been pledged for both the AU COVID-19 response and the AU Center for Disease Control and Prevention. It will take long to recover the economic loss due to this virus. And although we do not know yet what the full impact of the pandemic is, we are starting that recovery now. And it is important that we approach this through the balanced strategy that we've decided on, to save lives on the one side and also to preserve livelihoods. It becomes a very delicate balance. 
But it is a balance that has to be struck because in the end, we cannot overemphasize the other at the expense of the other. I thank you. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Deputy Speaker. Now, President, the aftermath of any economic downturn or devastation is usually characterized by extensive market regulations and industrial planning, which are state-led. Now, President, what are the policy options being considered by government that would allow and give space to the hard-hit sectors to recover, specifically the protection of locally manufactured products. I thank you, Deputy Speaker. Thank you, President. Indeed, any, if you like, uh, devastation post-situation, as we now talk about, post-COVID as being almost similar to post-war, does in the end lead to a reset of many things, reset of processes, reset of policies, reset of protocols. And we now need to reset nearly everything because the post-COVID is going to change everything. And I think Many people around the world accept that, including your central banks that are often quite uh, conservative. They now believe that we've got to look at the rules again. Even us as policymakers, we've got to look at the policies that we've embarked upon in the past and see whether they are still fit for purpose and for the current situation that is now going to confront us post-COVID-19. I happen to believe that, yes, we do need to reset our economy. We do need to reset the structure of our economy. We do need to look at the ways we've always done things. And this is the moment that should herald a new change. And in a way, much as COVID-19 is a dark cloud that is hanging over the lives and the economy of our country, it does have a silver lining. And the silver lining is that it gives us an opportunity to look at the way we've been doing things, our policies, and our processes, our institutions, and see whether they are still fit for purpose to deal with the devastation that COVID-19 is going to bring about. So therefore, yes, the state has to play a critical role. Even your more conservative countries in the world are saying, the state now needs to play its role. Any post-war situation must be state-led. That is where the state needs to set policies, give direction, 
and the state, therefore, is called upon, as it has been called upon to give leadership in the past 80 days, and similarly, it will still be required to give leadership, to look at, yes, how the market is functioning and how the market is structured. It will need to look at various policy options. Other policy options that we had pre-COVID-19 still relevant beyond that, and that is precisely what we are now looking at in government. Are the time frames that we had in mind still the same? As it is now, even our budget, our budgeting processes also need to be looked at. Our Minister of Finance is going to be coming to the House to present an emergency budget, and it's a reset of the budget that was presented. And going forward, we're already looking at starting from point zero. A zero-based budgeting process is now going to be heralded. It's going to be the new order of the day. So we now are going to have a new normal as we, we proceed forward. And of course, in doing so, we want to be able to, to advance a number of options and initiatives. The first is many people are going to lose their jobs. We now need to embark on a very vigorous process of creating jobs. We also need to protect jobs that may be at risk at the moment. And we have already in the 500 billion Rand that we announced, part of that is going to be protecting jobs. And so therefore, we are going to be acting in a way unconventionally. We are going to be acting in a way that will protect the livelihoods of a number of our people, protecting jobs, creating jobs. But we will also be looking at new sectors of the economy. The restructuring process of our economy that needs to get underway. We need to ask ourselves, which are the new sectors that we need to look at? The capacity of the state also needs to be strengthened. We need to hasten the strengthening of the capacity of the state. We now need to look to the various subsectors of our economy, but we also need to look at great opportunities speaker, that lie ahead. A point of order, Speaker. One of those is... Uh, Mr. President, a moment. What's the point of order? Speaker, just yesterday, there was a agreed, uh, you know, um, position that every speaker must have the approved background of parliament. And the president seems not to be following in that agreement. I think that it's in order that the president leads by example and puts a background that is approved by parliament. Each and every member has been sent this background. And there's no excuse uh, the president of the country to be using a background that is obviously political and does not really speak yes, to parliament. Yes. He must not, even though he's at home, he must at least resemble parliament as all of us have done. So please, may the president follow the rules as all of us are doing. Thank you. The president Speaker. is following the rules. He is not a member of parliament. Yes. That rule doesn't apply to you. Uh, honorable members, uh, Honorable President, please proceed. Honorable Point of Order.
Hello, Rene. On a point of order, on a point of order, speaker. Out of order. I hope the point is not about matter. Yes, let's hear. Your ruling is out of order. President, when he's in parliament, the rules of parliament applies to him. Don't come with that teaching approach of favoring other people and not favoring other people. You know very well that even if he's not a member of parliament, the rules of parliament apply to him when he's in parliament. And, and as you are encouraging all of us to do, ask him to put a parliament background. Honorable Malema, uh, listen to me. Uh, you've made your point, and I've ruled on this matter. If you contest the ruling, please do what the rules say you must do. You can't contest it during the session. You must write to the speaker and lay your complaint there. Please. We are proceeding. Uh, Mr. President, please on proceed. Point of order. On the point of order, Deputy Speaker. If it's, I hope it's not the same point. If it is, you are out of order, out of order in advance. I'm not taking any view on this matter. And I'm advised but, by the who do that. Yesterday, it is you yesterday who said, who said that people must not matter. use any other background. And, and, and you know very well that the rules of the National Assembly... You are also not using a background, Shivambo. You are not also yeah. in, uh, using the background. Honorable members, please. Are you also please. out of order? The president you allow the president to come. You allow yeah. the president to come yeah. on the fireplace yeah. in parliament. And you say that is acceptable. The president must display a fireplace in parliament. Honorable, Honorable Malema, you are parliamentary. Stop talking. Please stop talking. And honorable members, um, we have ruled on these matters. Members are not supposed to continue. We are going to put him in Baula, and there is nothing you can do. Honorable member, okay, you think there's nothing I can do? You watch the space. You watch <laughs> the space, honorable Malema, but, and you but have a risk. How do you, how do you preside with threats? You watch what? You watch what? Yesterday you're ruling. Today you must test your own medicine. Honorable Tell Ramaphosa to put a background. Please switch off the mics, please. Please switch off the mics. Whose mics are switching off now? Honorable members, I'm not taking any point of order anymore. Ah, yeah. Well, whose mics are switching off? Uh, honorable members, can you switch off those mics? Which mics? Uh, there is no point of order I'm going to accept now because the matters you are raising are about matters that I've ruled upon and you can't be contesting those in the House. Even on the assumption that I'm wrong, take it to the Speaker in writing as the rules advise you. You can't stop the proceedings of the House on the basis that your way is all our way. It can't be... Uh, Honorable President, please proceed. One of the opportunities that this moment heralds is that we've got to focus on areas that we've often spoken about but have not really followed through. Like, for instance, strengthening our industrial base through the reindustrialization process making sure that there is localization, that we manufacture goods in our country, 
and ensure that the manufacturing base is once more strengthened. We've seen how, for instance, as we've been scouring around the world trying to get masks and PPEs, that this can give us a great opportunity to have our own masks made here, our own PPEs made here. But this is an opportunity that many who are in the uh, manufacturing base are beginning to take up. So this post-COVID moment, we should utilize to make more South African goods, make sure that we localize, make sure we strengthen our industrial base. And through all this, we will then be able to focus on a number of areas that are going to support the livelihoods of our people, provide better services, and the opportunities post-COVID are quite plentiful. And so therefore, that is why I say, there is in the end a silver lining below this cloud. And our third phase, which was going to deal with the economic recovery going forward, must make sure that we build an inclusive economy, an economy that is going to create jobs, an economy that is going to ensure that young people are brought in, they use their capability, their knowledge, and we push the agenda of the fourth industrial revolution that women in our country get great opportunities and are supported. And we bring in the, the private sector, the private sector to invest more and more in the economy as we strengthen our state-owned enterprises as well. So going forward, we see great opportunities uh, and we believe that this is a moment when we need to move our economy forward. We will go through a slump because COVID-19 still has to have its effect and we need to see how that effect is going to, to work out, but we are going to go on with the rebuilding process as we move forward. Thank you, Honorable Deputy Speaker. Uh, thank you, Mr. President. Honorable Shengwa, it's your turn. Honorable members, you are screaming as if the house is not proceeding. Can, can you please take it easy? Well, thank you very much, uh, Honorable Deputy Speaker. Uh, Mr. President, obviously the situation before us is very dire if you consider the fact that some research gives projections that Africa will lose about 20 million jobs because of this virus. But also on the flip side of it, Mr. President, you speak about millions and billions of rands which will be injected to the many programs to reset and restart the economy. Be ignorant to the fact that chief amongst the biggest threats to the money that will be made available is corruption. You look at the Bait Bridge border post, for example, 37 million rands for 40 kilometers. You look at how the social development um, grants and food parcels have been abused now. The question then, Mr. President, becomes what is it that or what conversations and decisions are you taking at an executive level whilst Parliament will be, of course, having its own processes to actually deal with this um, scourge of corruption, which is, of course, taking um, advantage of the crisis uh, that we are in, particularly given the loopholes that are there. Honorable, Honorable Shengwa, you have over 
on this very difficult matter. Uh, Honorable Flengwa, please, in future, try and time yourself better. Put your questions up front so that when I cut you as a wheel, when you go over time, you've asked your question. Noted, Deputy Speaker. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, Honorable President. Honorable Deputy Speaker and Honorable Members. Of course, corruption is and remains a major challenge to our country. We need to be dealing with corruption effectively. And even as we announce this 500 billion economic relief and social relief, I took time to speak to the Auditor General and said, Auditor General, we need to put in place proactive mechanisms so that we do not come after the effect. We need to put in place mechanisms that are going to raise the alarm at an early stage. And the Auditor General had already taken it upon himself to get his office to come up with a number of protocols, a number of rules, which I think he is working through, because we do need to ensure that before those who have a corrupt intention are stopped in their tracks before they loot money that is meant for the poor people in our country. Of course, we've also been disturbed by news and reports that things such as food parcels have been redirected in ways that did not look as good as what they had, we had intended. And as they have happened, we're glad that the media raised the alarm. We're glad that various structures, including political parties in parliament here, did raise the alarm. And I'm sure that that has now quietened down quite a bit. But Honorable Shengwa, we are concerned as you are, and we want to ensure that the, the money that has been set aside for the COVID relief at a social level and at an economic level is properly used. And it is used for what it is intended for. And quite a bit of that money obviously is going to be utilized for social grants, which the Department of Social Development is dealing with. I was pleased when I heard their report about the distribution of uh, the 350 rand to a number of people who were not in their system. And that, that is proceeding. And well more than 1 million has already been distributed. And this week alone, they are going to be distributing a further 1 million. And that process that they've set in place is such that the money should end up going to those people that it was intended for. The money that should go as additional grants to the beneficiaries of our grant system 
will end up going there. The money that will be set aside to assist small and medium enterprises will end up going there. So in the main, the bulk of the money is going to be channeled through the various platforms that we have. And what we need to be alert about is the other money that will be distributed in ways that uh, will, will need to ensure that it does end up going to those beneficiaries. So we, we're going to ensure that the 500 billion rand is distributed in a way where we minimize corruption as much as possible. We will keep a hawk's eye on how all that is going to happen. And we're glad to know that an institution like the Auditor General will also be joining in in the act on a proactive basis rather than on a reactive basis. So we will try the best we can. And obviously with the assistance of the various structures in parliament, we hope that we will have minimized corruption as much as possible. Thank you, Deputy Speaker. Thank you, Mr. President. Honorable the Leader of Opposition. Thank you, Deputy Speaker. Um, everyone agrees, including your Finance Minister, Mr. President, that the only sustainable option for the way forward in our economy is through structural reform if we're going to unlock economic growth. In fact, Mr. President, structural reform was the basis on which you campaigned for the presidency of your party and for the country. And yet we stand here in Parliament today, three years later, and you've got nothing to show for it. Yesterday we heard we're going to have to spend 33 billion rand bailing out South African airways to save a thousand jobs. Mr. President, the question to you is this. Will you today make the brave stand and stand with the three million South Africans who are going to lose their jobs and oppose the 33 billion rand bailout? Or are you going to see that money being poured uh, into the abyss of state-owned entity like South African Airways, where it could have been used to save the lives and livelihoods of millions of more South Africans? Mr. President. Thank you very much, Deputy Speaker. We are going to do everything we can to ensure that we reposition our economy and our country on a reform process which is going to ensure that our economy functions a lot better. And one of the things that we have said is that we are going to also pay closer attention to our state-owned enterprises and ensure that our state-owned enterprises function in the way that they should efficiently and those state-owned enterprises that need attention should be given the attention from either a financial point of view, we should see how best those finances can be repositioned or an operational point of view. We've set up the state-owned enterprises council, which is going to be advising the government and cabinet on which cabinet ministers also will be sitting and we're going to have a closer look, a closer look at all our state-owned enterprises. And we will do so to advance 
the interests of all South Africans. State-owned enterprises will continue to play a, an important role in our economy. And this is also the case now post-COVID in other economies as well. The other day I saw that the German government had taken an equity position in Lufthansa because their airline has, uh, during the COVID period, hit a number of uh, financial difficulties and the state has moved in to support that airline. And indeed, this is what is happening in many countries around the world where enterprises, be they state-owned or privately owned, are now needing support, support to be able to move forward. Now, you talk about South African Airways, the business rescue practitioners are coming forward with a plan, which we are going to discuss. We're going to discuss precisely what they are proposing. I appointed an interministerial committee, which has been dealing with what the business rescue uh, practitioners have put forward. And we are going to interrogate precisely what they are proposing. The state is already exposed, if you care to know, to the South African Airways saga, if you like, because the state over time, and this did not happen last year or year before last, over time the state acts as the guarantor of the financial fortunes of many of our state-owned enterprises. So the state is already exposed to the tune of 16 billion. And Business rescue uh, practitioners are coming forward with a plan which we will look at very closely and we will look at the pros and the cons of precisely what they are proposing and the time frame. And we will also look at whether South African Airways can be restructured in any way, shape or form and whether in doing so we can look more broadly at our aviation industry. The post-COVID-19 situation gives us a number of opportunities that we now need to look at. And I'd like to invite you as well to look at the post-19 situation through different lenses, a different lens that will say, what do we do to restructure the economy of our country? What do we do also to reposition state-owned enterprises? And if you have any ideas, please bring them to the table because it is at this time that we are looking at various propositions as we move forward. Thank you very much, Deputy Speaker. Thank you very much, Mr. President. We now move to the uh, next uh, uh, question two asked by the leader of the on a point of order, on a point of order uh, speaker deputy speaker oh, my sorry my apologies oh, uh, my apologies honorable Chibambo, it's your turn go ahead it was not a mistake it was deliberate uh, the the question you are responding to president it's trouble Chibambo, if it's deliberate then you don't proceed you talk that's the rule you will not talk you are not the president of the country, man. 
I'm I'm on. Oh, I'm, but Tenuli, 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 you must stop behaving like you are drunk, man. You must stop behaving like you are drunk. I'm, Why do you subject us like you are a, you are, you are a subject? Perhaps Julius, you are drunk yourself. No, don't I'm, I'm asking a question. Yes, yes. Like, like, you are emotional, man. There's no way you will be allowed to speak. No way. Can I? But you are out no. of order, Chief. No, Who's I'm not out, out of order. You are all mm. out of order. Listen, no, he's out of order. Lichisa is out of order. You always ask thinks he's a clown. You are the clown. Stop being disrespectful. Yes, yes. Yes, yes. Uh, stop being disrespectful is you thinking that we are here in your favor. We're not here in your favor. We're voted to be here. And you, we are not you're going to operate with some emotional... Can I, can I proceed with the question? Yes, on condition you know what you must do. You know what the condition. What should I do? You have got, you're on the chair now. You must tell me what should I do. Uh, you put it on. You add it on. You put it on. The background. You do it. But deputy speaker... All your people were, were speaking with a different background. They were never ordered to do so. Why are hey, you? But who is this person who screams like one of the Proceed. Yeah, that's fine. Thank you very much, yeah. President. The question is in two parts. The question that you are responding to is in two parts. One is in relation to the sovereign economy, and two is in relation to the free trade agreement, the African free trade agreement. And predictably, your response, you say you're going to call another symposium. That is what you did when we, you had the coup d'etat on Jacob Zuma in 2018. You did see got lots of commitments on growth and, uh, and, and investments. Your friends, the white capitalist establishment, committed to grow the sovereign economy. But since you were in office, South Africa's economy has grown by less than 0.2% which is the worst since the global economic crisis. And, and there seems to be nothing. You are saying now that post-COVID, we're going to start localizing. And that is a commitment you made when you first locked down South Africa. Why not now? The last question that I want to deal with is that, noting the fact that the economy in the entire African continent is owned and controlled by the colonial descendants, the descendants of colonial settlers, and is in this free trade agreement going to be a free trade of colonialists and now the Chinese without any African ownership of the economy in terms of that.
plan to do? The time has expired. Honorable President. In saying that we need to localize. But the post-COVID situation is going to add impetus to precisely that. We have been able to see how we can get, firstly, our industrialists, our own industrialists, to live up to coming into the economy, becoming real industrialists, becoming manufacturers. I have seen, Honorable Chibambu, for myself, how a number of black industrialists are taking various opportunities that COVID-19 is presenting to them. They are making some of the goods that are now needed right here in our own country. They are making the masks. They are making the PPEs. And they now are going to be moving forward to even making the test kits. And many of them are black industrialists. And we need to welcome this. And over time, they will start having economies of scale as to be able also to export. Later today, we are going to be launching a platform for the African continent, where we are going to be able to get all countries on the African continent to buy diagnostic and therapeutic medical supplies. Admittedly, quite a number of them come from other countries. But interestingly, a number of those supplies are going to be supplied by African manufacturers, right from Egypt, right through down to the South. And they are going to be part of this platform. They are going to be selling to the entire continent various supplies. And this is what COVID-19 is presenting to the continent as a silver lining. A number of African 100% owned African entities on the African continent are coming to the fore. They are going to be part of the Africa Free Trade Area Agreement. And they are now going to also participate in this platform for medical supplies that we are going to set up. So we are seeing, we are seeing the positive side. And what we are also saying is that we need to be encouraging, supporting, and the state needs to be assisting and giving incentives and giving support, both financial and otherwise, to these, in our own country, black industrialists, as many as possible, to help grow the economy of our country. And yes, the economic growth of our country has been tapering down for some time. And what we have been doing is to do everything we can to reposition our economy so that we can begin to accede to higher levels of growth. But post-COVID-19 is going to give us even a 
greater opportunity to be able to do so. So I am, I am optimistic. I am not pessimistic like some people are. I am very optimistic. And I think that we do have an opportunity. And these are opportunities that we must yield. And if there ever was a time for us to be able to bring in more and more black people into the industrial base, the manufacturing base, this is the time that we need to utilize. And that is why we are saying the restructuring of our economy is a moment that we now need to grasp. Thank you very much, Deputy Speaker. Uh, thank you, Mr. President. The second Deputy question. Speaker. Deputy Speaker, may I rise on a point of order? What's the point of order? Deputy Speaker, Honorable Shivambo said that the president led a coup d'etat against former president Jacob Zuma. That mm. is correct. There was no coup d'etat. And I request <clears throat> that in terms of our rules, you should withdraw the statement. Uh, honorable members, we'll look at it and we'll uh, come back on that matter. And we'll I make a ruling. Honorable uh, 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 leader of the opposition asked the next question. Uh, Mr. President, the second question. Honorable Deputy Speaker and Honorable Members, in determining the appropriate response to the global coronavirus pandemic, government has been informed by the advice of scientists, by the experiences of other countries, and from the guidance of the World Health Organization, as well as the Africa Center for Disease Control and Prevention. The decision to institute a nationwide lockdown was informed, amongst other things, by epidemiological analyses based on the available evidence of the rate at which the number of coronavirus cases was increasing. This provided modeled estimates of over 1 million infections at peak. Recently, the country's COVID-19 modeling consortium has generated optimistic as well as pessimistic estimates of between 3.4 to 3.7 million cases of infections by the 1st of November this year. The initial estimates pointed to the need to act quickly and decisively before the epidemic curve reached what scientists call the inflection point. Now the inflection point is when the curve changes from a slow and a steady increase in cases to one with an exponential growth, almost an explosive growth. South Africa had an opportunity to act early before its inflection point had been reached. We made the decision to implement a lockdown when there were 274 confirmed cases in the country. At that point, Scientists estimated that South Africa 
already had over 1,000 cases, many of which had not been identified yet due to limited screening and stringent testing criteria. By the time I announced the lockdown on the Monday, the 23rd of March, the number of confirmed cases had risen to 402, and by the time the lockdown took effect, if we all recall, on Friday, the 27th of March, there were already 1,170 cases. In other words, we had seen an explosion. A prolonged delay in implementing stringent measures would have meant that South Africa would have missed the window of opportunity to achieve a significant flattening of the curve. This could have led to a runaway epidemic with potentially catastrophic consequences for our healthcare services. And in this case, it's important that the graph that Professor Karim has shown and Minister Mkiza has shown repeatedly should remain affixed in our minds. Where we were proceeding on the same trajectory as the UK. And when we did the lockdown, we immediately saw us deviating from the path that the UK was moving forward on. The UK kept on moving up when our cases of infection started moving more flatter. And they kept moving up with their own infections going higher and higher and many deaths accompanying that. Now, in the three weeks before the nationwide lockdown, the number of the cases in our country was doubling every two days. During the course of, the, of level five lockdown, cases were on average doubling only every 15 days, meaning that the lockdown was taking the effect that we intended. Since we began easing of the lockdown during alert levels four and three, the doubling time has now been around 12 days. In other words, the lockdown enabled the country to start to flatten the curve, delaying community transmission, something we were most concerned about when we were not ready, for long enough to prepare our health facilities and implement public health responses. Now, if you remember that graph of the UK and ourselves, when they implemented what appeared to be a lockdown, they were already at the height of a number of deaths and many more infections. And in our case, we had succeeded through the lockdown to flatten and the doubling effect had come back down from two days to 15 days. And now it has come down to 12 days. I thank you. Thank you, Honorable the Leader of the Opposition. Thank you, Deputy Speaker. Uh, Mr. President, at the beginning of the pandemic, you asked South Africans to make sacrifices.
and South Africans have complied. And this has come at a huge cost. Many have lost their jobs and their businesses that they've spent years building up. However, Mr. President, you and your government have not played your part uh, in the pandemic by being transparent with how you have had made, made these decisions and the data and modeling that informs them. You've withheld all but the very top level COVID data uh, from the citizens of this country, including the model which you say you have relied upon to implement uh, the lockdown, the initial lockdown, but then to extend the hardest, longest and most brutal lockdown in the world during this period. Mr. President, why do you believe that citizens who've sacrificed so much do not have the right to this information? Mr. President. What brutal. Thank you. Thank you, Honorable uh, Deputy Speaker. The information that I've just disclosed now is information that we did in time disclose. One of those was one of the most horrific, where they said we are possibly going to see up to 40,000 people dead. And discussing it within our own ranks, we said there's just no reason why any information, modeling or otherwise, should not be disclosed to South Africans. There's no reason why we should be acting in the dark. Every piece of information about this should be disclosed. And I'm very pleased that the medical advisory committee that Dr. Mkiza set up to advise government has been able to come up with a number of advisories. And of course, we've also seen how a number of the members, 51 member uh, medical advisory committee have had diverse views. And we have not, we have not shied away from saying, yes, even if they have diverse views, those diverse views must be heard. There may well have been a blip along the way, but we've said if they have diverse views and if anyone, scientist or otherwise in our country, has diverse views and modelers, and we've had chartered accountants do, doing quite a lot of modeling, actuaries doing quite a lot of modeling, the consortium of modelers has come up with a lot of modeling. So the modeling, the modeling, truth be told, has come up with such variant type of models. And some of the models have been completely off of the beam. And some of them have beaten a middle path. And I must say that we have not been short of information that should be made available. And I'm one of those, Honorable Stian Hazen, who would say, Whatever information there is, yes, needs to be put out there in the public. And South Africans are very discerning. Apart from having made huge sacrifices, as you correctly say, they're very discerning. They've been able to make judgments. And as the government has led this process, it has led this process honestly, with integrity, 
without seeking to hide anything to the people of South Africa. And I have said myself that as there is no textbook, textbook on how we should traverse our way around managing this virus, there have been moments where, yes, we've had some missteps. But in the main, the government of the Republic of South Africa has been straightforward, honest with the people of South Africa, led them with integrity and disclosed information. Our ministers have been briefing the public on an ongoing basis. And with that has come a lot of information that has been displayed to our people. Minister of Health continues to brief the people of South Africa about the progression of the pandemic. The National Coronavirus uh, Command Council meets regularly, and through that we are able to get the advice not only of the net joints, which is on an hourly basis seized with the task of managing the, 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 the virus uh, process, but also the medical advisory committee. So the various institutions in our country, from the NICD and, and many others, have been seized with seeking to put forward information to the public of South Africa without hiding the information. Thank you very much, Deputy Speaker. Thank you. Honorable Sheikh Imam. Thank you, Honorable Deputy Speaker. Mr. President, on scientific risk assessment, it is your command council that allowed the opening of schools, which is now a disaster, with hundreds of schools not having water and PPEs. It is your command council that have allowed alcohol, despite all the evidence on contrary to the benefits of alcohol, but what a challenge is it is in society. It is your command council that took a decision on tobacco, saying that tobacco was harmful, but now made an about turn in court. It is your command council that has said it is safe to travel by air, despite the evidence to the contrary that it is not uh, safe to travel by air in a full flight. Now, what scientific evidence did your command council rely on to take such decisions? And very importantly, Mr. President, you repeatedly talk about strict protocols. Hundreds of regulations were made. What measures has your command council put in place to ensure there's a high level of compliance to ensure that we limit transmission? Thank you, Mr. President. Mr. President. Thank you very much. As I said right at the beginning, various processes that, and interventions that we've embarked upon as government have been interventions in the main that have been advised and thoroughly discussed by our experts and our scientists. And obviously, we have also had to do the risk assessment as the political leaders of the country, as we've implemented this. For instance, when it comes to opening schools, we did say that we would not say want to see us losing the year of schooling. What is it that we can do? The Medical Advisory Council advice was 
So long as we can make sure that there is social distancing, and so long as we can ensure that we utilize all the tools in the toolbox, the masks, the hand washing, uh, uh, sanitizers, and the young people are properly distanced in, our, in the class. They said, yes, that can be uh, an option to go for. We then decided to do what I would call light touch. We said, we're not going to open up all the classes. We're going to open up the two, if you like, finishing classes, grade seven, as well as grade 12. And that is what we decided on. And it was risk adjusted based. Yes, admittedly, as uh, Honorable Imam says, we, many schools have not had the protective uh, equipment and that is being looked at and that is being worked on. Minister of Basic Education is continuously monitoring the availability of all those at all the schools in our country. And we have said, even as I announced it, I said, where this is not in existence, and if parents do not feel satisfied, the schools should not open. And that has by and large been adhered to. Yes, of course, there have been infections where young people have been infected and brought infections in the schools, and that has been immediately identified and measures have been taken. And the view we've taken is that this virus is going to be with us for a long time, possibly for years. And we therefore need to live with the virus, manage it, and ensure that we adjust the risk. And as we do so, ensure that our people are safe, but as we move on, particularly on the economic side, that we save livelihoods as well. The issue of alcohol was discussed quite thoroughly by the various structures, including the National Coronavirus Command Council. And it was felt that if we can put in place the various measures of ensuring that even as we open alcohol at this point in time, we should try and restrict as much as we can. Now, of course, as we opened it, a number of our people in South Africa started going way overboard. And as I was saying yesterday, it has led to abuse as well. And this is the debate that we should have as a nation. South Africa is one of those countries that abuses and uses quite a lot of alcohol more than many other countries. And we need to be looking at precisely how we should do this. Could we have banned alcohol forever? And many people will say, no, you could not have. When would the right time have been to open it up? Was level three the correct time or was it level one? And that is a matter that is still open up for debate. On the tobacco issue, the tobacco issue, that is a matter that was discussed extensively and many of our people through various formations 
participated in the debate, and that is what led to the change of decision which we had announced. And it was after the participation and the views that we got from our people. And of course now it is in the hands of the court. And the air travel issue, yes, we've allowed travel uh, within the country for business purposes. And we believe that if, for instance, there can be the, pros, the protocols can be observed, we can curb the rate of infections. Because in the end, we do need to accept that this virus is going to be with us for a long time and we need to take protective measures to ensure that we do not spread the virus. So everything has to be based on how we can adjust the risk and analyze the risk and arrive at a risk-adjusted outcome to move forward because we cannot, in the end, remain locked up forever and in a day. I thank you. Thank you, Mr. President. Um, Honorable Mente. Uh, Yes, thank you. Uh, Mr. President, with all the scientific evidence that the NCCC has got, you still have not released the statistics on the basis of race of all those that are affected, are in fact infected by the disease, and those that have passed on. We still want that. If then that's the scientific proof to indicate to all South Africans as to who is affected the most by this virus. Secondly, we need detail on specific actions that you have taken to ensure that our health system is not overwhelmed when the coronavirus reaches its peak. We need details on hospitals. We need details on healthcare workers. Will there be enough of them? We need details of the testing kits that the country has got now and the ventilators. And we want to know, because right now the country has got only 3,300 beds, both in public and private hospitals, as I see you. And that's not enough to accommodate all the... Remember, please, your time has expired. Uh, Honorable President... Uh, honorable Thank members you. the ANC here, you are out of order. You can't be screaming across the way you are doing right now. Please, you two, you two, you two in the left. No, you two, you've been doing it together. It's out of order, members. No, no, you can't be this disorderly, man. Please, uh, order. Uh, honorable President, uh, thank you, Honorable Deputy Speaker. Honorable Member would like us to give statistics on a race basis. Uh, the statistics are available as they have been accumulated on age and region and all that. And I guess uh, they have not been classified on a, on a racial basis. 
Uh, and they're also available on a gender basis. And I think that should already have been made uh, public, uh, as I think it has. Uh, so the classification on a race basis, uh, in my view, has not uh, been done. But I've heard what the Honorable Member is saying. With regards to the details on, say, hospitals, in relation particularly to the, the, our health system being overwhelmed, we've said that the period of the lockdown from level five to level three has given us the opportunity in our health system to be ready to do a whole number of things and to embark on a number of interventions. We have, for instance, the capacity that we now have is 404 quarantine facilities with 37,000 beds. And uh, a number of them have already been activated, almost 15,000 of these beds have been activated and we're waiting for the activation of the others. 27,464 hospital beds allocated for COVID-19 patients, and of whom we've got 2,500 critical care beds. Now, of course, we need more. I have been at pains as I've traveled around the country telling our provinces that we need more of these beds. And we're utilizing the period that we are in now to get more of these beds. The health workers, we've got to have more health workers. And a number of health workers are also testing positive. We've got 1,076 nurses and 163 doctors who have tested positive but we are going ahead recruiting other health workers, health workers who will come in. All our, all our provinces need more health personnel. And I've, I've said that within the allocated resources, we need to be getting more and more ready. And I've said that we can never be more ready for COVID-19. We've almost got to be over-prepared because the peak is still coming. And as we reach our peak, this period of the lockdown has, must have prepared us for it so that we are able to deal with the cases. And unfortunately, because our health system is at the level where it is, we've been seeing more recoveries, almost 55% recoveries. And all this is due to the health system, it is not yet where we want it to be, but at the same time, it is a health system that has been ensuring that those who recover, do recover well. And 55% recoveries is quite a good number, but we would like to see it going higher and higher. I thank you. Thank you, Mr. President. Uh, Honorable uh, Gromo, 
the chair of the committee. Uh, it's your turn. That's the question. Thank the you very much, uh, Deputy Speaker. No, no, no. You have asked the question. You wait for the president to answer. Oh, is it a supplementary question? Oh, yeah. Oh, uh, you're one of it. I'm not against the one who was saying, it. Thank you, Deputy Speaker. But you um, supplementary question to the president. <laughs> In your address to the, to the nation yesterday, Honorable President, you made reference to a term called doubling time, and you explained that term so well last night. There's another term, Honorable President, that uh, scientists have also used, and uh, you have made a reference on it now, the term called inflection point. Inflection point, uh, just for the South Africans, is a point at which uh, the epidemic changes from uh, growing slowly to a point where it is growing exponentially. Can the president provide an indication on what may have happened in South Africa if the president did not act before the, inflec the inflection point? Perhaps looking at what happened to countries that acted long after the inflection point. Thank you very much. Thank you. Mr. President. Thank you, Deputy Speaker. It is good to get an accolade from a medical doctor on medical terms. Honorable Deputy Speaker, if we had not implemented the lockdown when we did, we would quite easily we could quite easily have been speaking about thousands of South Africans having died. And our infection rate would have been much higher than what it is. We have been commended for having moved early and it was not an easy decision, not only for the leaders in government, the cabinet, but also for our people collectively. Because it, the reality of what we needed to do came suddenly. And in a way, it was when Dr. Mkise came forward and said, from a medical point of view, Mr. President, this is what we are seeing. This virus is soon going to get out of our control unless we act. And we paused for a while, but in the end, as we saw the infection, right at the beginning, Dr. Mkiza called me twice a day to say, we now have so many, we now have so many. And even as he did, my heart started racing more and more, realizing the, 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 the weighty situation that we were under. And it was then that the cabinet decided that we needed to act quickly. It was a collective decision. And as it turned out, it was a correct decision because had we not done so, and we've done a demonstration 
Dr. Jomo, Honorable Jomo, with the graph that I referred to earlier with the UK. Not putting the UK down or any country down, but those countries that did not act as quickly as they should have found that the infection rate was galloping out of control. And we were rather fortunate. The World Health Organization, the United Nations, the Africa Center for Disease Control has complimented South Africa for the measures that we took when we did. Because the action we took demonstrably flattened the curve. It demonstrably did flatten that curve and it gave us an opportunity to get ready as we are continuing to get ready, but also to spread the message, to get South Africans to change their behavior, to get South Africans to behave in a way that demonstrates that, yes, we are going to live with this virus, we therefore have to change the way that we live. I thank you, Honorable Deputy Speaker. Thank you, Dr. Thank you, Mr. President. Uh, Honorable Tandi Mudise, Madam Speaker, are you ready? Yes, sir, I'm ready. Thank you very much. Honorable, uh, uh, the Speaker will take over from me from now onwards. Thank you, Madam Speaker. Thank you, sir. Mr. President, the question Number three was put to you by the Honorable J.S. Malema. Mr. President. Honorable Speaker and Honorable Members, as I indicated in the earlier reply, our response to the coronavirus pandemic has been informed by the advice of our scientists made up of the Medical Advisory Committee, 51 scientists of various diverse disciplines. It has also been underpinned by the experiences of other countries and the guidance that we've received from bodies like the World Health Organization and the Africa Center for Disease Control and Prevention. Much of the scientific input we have received has come from, as I was saying, the Ministerial Advisory Committee, which was established by the minister. Through the course of the pandemic, the MAC, which is the Ministerial Advisory Committee, which, as I was saying, brings together disciplines such as scientists, clinicians, researchers, epidemiologists, uh, has assisted government in various areas of the response. Now, the committee helped to develop the country's eight-phase strategy in which a strict lockdown was just one of the phases with specific objectives and a finite time frame. 
in deciding on when to begin the gradual and systematic easing of the lockdown, government was guided by the views of the scientists, the experience of other countries, and wide-ranging consultations. It also took into account the economic and social disruption that has been caused by the lockdown and the devastating impact the lockdown was having on people's incomes and livelihoods. In providing guidance, the ministerial committee used the level of community transmission as the basis for determining the state of the pandemic in the country. At that time, the proportion of coronavirus tests that were positive had been consistently low for a long time and had remained in a narrow range of 1.5% to 3.5% for several weeks in all parts of the country, except for in the Western Cape. In arriving at this decision, due consideration was given to the criteria suggested by the World Health Organization for countries to transition from lockdown to reopening of normal social activities. These criteria are, firstly, the disease transition should be under control. Secondly, health systems should be able to detect, test, isolate, and treat every case and trace every contact. Thirdly, hotspot risks should be minimized in vulnerable places. Fourthly, that schools, workplaces, and other essential places should have established preventative measures. And fifthly, that the risk of importing new cases can be managed. And lastly, that communities are fully educated, engaged, empowered to live under a new normal, that is to live with the virus. In an advisory to the minister, the ministerial advisory committee noted that some of the WHO criteria may not be appropriate for South Africa. Unlike several other countries, South Africa deliberately implemented a lockdown early in the progression of the disease as a strategy to delay transmission. I may add here that we were not the only country to immediately implement a lockdown. There were a number of countries that moved at the same time as we did. There were also countries that did not. And we did this knowing that we would not be able to bring transmission under control by the time we had to, to ease the lockdown but that it would give us the time, as I've been saying, that we needed to strengthen our health system and put a comprehensive public health response in place. Now the WHO has supported South Africa in this approach. In considering the transition from alert level five to alert level four, and then subsequently to alert level three, I engaged with numerous stakeholders, including business, labor, 
community representatives, political party leaders, premiers, mayors, traditional leaders, and religious leaders as well. And this we did so that the government can have the views of these myriad of stakeholders before transitioning to the next level. Now, as the National Coronavirus Command Council, we remain committed to consult widely with diverse stakeholders in taking decisions that will both protect the lives of our people and support their livelihoods. And it is on this basis that we have been able to take the decisions with, including delineating certain areas of our country for differentiated type of approaches. And the differentiated approach, which is already showing good signs of benefit. So all what we have done was not thumb sucked. It was properly discussed, properly assessed, and it was also benchmarked against what advice we got from the WHO, who are managing this virus across the world in the most magnificent way, because they know what is happening in every country, and they intervene with advice, with guidance, and precisely what we've been benefiting from. And we've also been bolstered by our own structure in Africa, which has really wrapped its arms around what the continent is doing in terms of a strategy, as well as the management of the virus continent-wide. So there have been a lot of advice, a lot of views that have been expressed in this regard, and that is what has strengthened us and given us the ability to manage the virus as we have. I thank you. Thank you, Mr. President. The first supplementary goes to you, Honorable Malema. Thank you very much, uh, Speaker, and thank you for coming at a very critical time because the other one would have messed up my session. That's not now, necessary, Honorable Malema. Please proceed uh, with the supplementary. Saying it's supposed to be necessary to you, Speaker. It's my turn now. So yes. now, what happens, uh, Mr. President, is that, is that we are more than convinced that we are actually not following any scientific advice. If anything, we are being bullied by big capital, uh, which maximizes profit at all costs. Because what type of scientific advice will advise that the president of a country should address or answer questions in parliament sitting in his home next to a fireplace and allow children to go to school. Because the president who's got all types of resources uh, can address the parliament. Uh, 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 you are sitting comfortably in your own home as a leader of a country who follows science. 
and your sign says ch take children okay. uh, to schools, to the streets, to go and fight this pandemic, while all of us are in the comfort of our own zoo. Mr. President, do you have any scientific evidence of how many people are going to die out of this oh. pandemic? How do you have you been given an advice as to uh, within a particular period of time, we can expect that South Africa will lose so many lives uh, or we are just going uh, as usual without even anticipating or knowing what are the expected infections and what are the uh, expected death within a particular uh, period of time. Because we know, Mr. President, that you are chasing only profits and not lives. You've got a, a history of sacrificing life in Marikana for profit. And we are experiencing it again now, where the lives of children are being... Honorable Malema. Point of when order. you should give us solutions and stop talking what you talk. Give us solutions. He's also at home on the fireplace. Malema is also not in, in Parliament. Honourable members, honourable members, if you have not been recognised to speak, do not unmute that mic, because otherwise I will give instructions for that mic to be muted. You will respect us because we are on parliamentary business. Honourable Malema, you are wrapping up your supplementary. So, I mean, there is no any signs that can say to you, Mr. President, sell alcohol it is safe to sell alcohol because you will know science will advise you that once you sell alcohol the trauma units are going to be Malema, your time is and, now expired and we'll you have to divide the resources honorable malema your time is up mr president thank you uh, honorable uh, speaker and honorable members we have said repeatedly, and I said that in my main reply, that we have been advised by top scientists in our country, and we've also benchmarked what we are doing here against what is happening in other parts of the world. Many parts of the world did not do what we did. Our lockdown was hard. We will concede that. We went on even to restrict things that many other countries did not restrict, like alcohol, like cigarettes, and the buying and selling of a number of items. But we knew that with time, we were not going to be able to keep to the lockdown forever, because it is impossible to lock any country down forever. And let me say, many other countries around the world are having to deal with the challenges that we are dealing with. Some eased their lockdowns and reverted back to harder lockdowns. Some did not lock down when we did, and they have 
paid the price for it. And we've been well advised to do what we are doing on a gradual basis with the necessary advice. The opening up of schools, we've explained how this has evolved. Many countries have opened schools and others have not. And as we observed the opening of schools around the world and the protocols they were putting in place and the advice that we got, we realized that yes, we could do exactly the same, but with even harder a, a protocol. And that's what we opted for. The issue of alcohol, I have explained it. The issue of tobacco, I have explained it. And all this has been well discussed. And let me even say that the discussions even ensued at the NEDLEC level, where labor, communities, and business are represented. Where as we moved from level five, the consultations were quite broad, very broad and detailed, and backed up by the scientific and the medical advice, we were able to package all that and say we can move forward on a risk-adjusted basis, adjusting the risk. And of course, it is a risk like everything else would be a risk. But what I would like to reiterate is we've been resolutely committed to saving lives. When we took the decision for a lockdown, the overriding objective was to save the lives of South Africans. And that continues to guide what we do. It guides our actions. But at the same time, we've also said we need to preserve livelihoods. Now, when we introduced or announced the 500 billion assistant package, we knew that for the most part, it was going to be a stopgap measure. It was going to help to stabilize the lives of our people. It could not go on forever. And that is why even with the social grants, they were time-based. They were not additions to social grants, including the COVID-19, 350 rand. It's not forever because we don't have the resources. But we knew that we needed to act and to come in and support the livelihoods of our people. Now, there is no government in the world that can continue to support the livelihoods of its citizens having closed up that which gives them a livelihood, which is the economy. And we therefore said we would open certain sectors of the economy, as we have been doing on a gradual basis. And we've been seeking to do it in a responsible manner, and moving from the very hard lockdown, 
which we knew could not go on forever. Because for that lockdown to go on forever would mean that our economy would be completely destroyed. And the livelihoods of our people would also be destroyed. As it is now, as a result of the economy having been closed, the revenue base for the taxes that need to be paid right across the board from taxes from personal income, company income, VAT, uh, excise duty on alcohol, uh, taxes on tobacco, all those have gone down. And the big hole that we now have is almost 300 billion. A 300 billion that we could have had to support services, to support our people. It was a sacrifice that all of us had to make. We've made the sacrifice. Continuing to close the economy would have meant that we wipe out, we completely wipe out the tax base that we've got and possibly even destroyed because some of the companies, honorable members, will not be able to reopen. Some of the companies are, will be closed down for good. And that is a huge price to pay because it impacts on livelihoods. And may I say, in the end, we have not yet counted the number of jobs that would have been lost, that we are going to lose post-COVID-19. As we speak now, many people, and I say this with a heavy heart, many people are going to lose their jobs. And it is this that this government needs to manage. We were elected to manage precisely this. And honorable speaker, this is what I am determined to manage. Thank you. Thank you, sir. The honorable Pierre Mishwe, you have the second supplementary. Thank you, speaker. The ACDP welcomes the president's announcement last night about the easement of lockdown restrictions. We have long been calling for the unlocking of the economy. Given that our economy is on a perilous path, even more so now as a result of the lockdown and its effects on the global economy, many more of our citizens find themselves unemployed and struggling to survive. And some children have been admitted to hospitals for malnutrition. As there are some among us who, for fear of infections, are opposed to the easing of lockdown. To allow their fears, can the Honorable President please inform the nation who has the final say in terms of preparedness in the workplace and schools? And who has the final say to move the lockdown from one level to the other and ultimately to end the lockdown altogether? Does the World Health Organization have a say in that decision? I thank you. The Honorable the President. Thank you, Honorable Speaker. We, as I have said before, 
The Cabinet of the Republic of South Africa has the final say. Because we are elected as the executive of the nation to take decisions. And we are the government. We have the final say. The World Health Organization advises us. We work with the health, uh, World Health Organization like the Medical Advisory Committee advises government. The National Coronavirus Command Council is an intermediary body that is made up of the president and, and ministers. But in the end, it is the cabinet. And that is why we've taken care that decisions, proposals are discussed at the Medical Advisory Committee, at the NET joints, and then they come to the National Coronavirus Command Council. And when decisions have to be made on recommendation from all these bodies, it is the National Executive Cabinet that takes the decisions. So as we have moved from level to level, we've taken counsel, we've taken advice, We've taken proposals from a variety of role players. And we are proud of the fact that we could possibly be the only country in the world that when it takes decisions on major issues, does consult, does talk to our people as represented through their various formations. But in the end, yes, the buck stops with the cabinet of the Republic of South Africa. Thank you, Deputy Speaker, uh, uh, Honorable Speaker. Thank you, President. The third supplementary will be put to you, President, by the Honorable C.P. Mulder. Thank you, Honorable Speaker. Honorable President, it is common cause that it is the view of the economic freedom fighters that the whole country should remain in level five and in a total lockdown indefinitely. It is also known that it is to gain total control of the economy. In order to achieve that, the Honorable Leader of the EFF recently made his view clear when he said that lockdown should continue so as to have the white economy, whatever that may mean, to collapse. Yeah, Mr. President, you made, the today, you made the point earlier today that post-COVID, we will be confronted by a post-war economic landscape and that we need a balanced strategy. Is it your view and the view of your government that certain sectors of our economy first needs to collapse before we get South Africa through this economic crisis? Thank you. Thank you, Tatiya Malda. Mr. President? Honorable, stop it. Honorable Julius, I'm not taking points of orders. No, on a point of order, that African can speak for. No, 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 Honorable Malema, we're not doing that. We are in a question session. Honorable President, take the platform and respond. Honorable Speaker, Honorable Speaker, the government of the Republic of South Africa has been charged with the responsibility of advancing the lives and livelihoods of 
all South Africans. That is the responsibility we have. We've also been charged with the responsibility of managing the economy of the Republic of South Africa, safeguarding our economy, advancing it, restructuring it, repositioning it, and it so happens that post-COVID-19, we have to reset our economy, restructure it so that it can benefit all the people of South Africa and grow on an inclusive basis. So therefore, we cannot countenance a situation where we could see a collapse of any section of our economy. And as it is now, some sections or sectors of our economy are actually on their knees. I cite, for instance, tourism. Tourism is one of those sectors that have been negatively affected to a point where a number of companies in the tourist field may not survive or may not come back. Our task is to see how best we can help the operators of those entities in tourism, how we can support those companies, and how we can protect the workers, the, the jobs rather, protect the jobs and indeed protect the workers as well in the various sectors of our economy. Our approach and our thrust is to boost the various sectors of our economy, but we want to do it on a collective basis where all South Africans participate in advancing the fortunes, if you like, of all South Africans. I thank you. Thank you, Mr. President. The last supplementary on this question will be put by the Honorable M.G. Mathaule in the chamber. Thank you very much, uh, Speaker. The Honorable the President, please find comfort in the fact that the members that you lead of the ANC are in the chamber. They are back at work. Yes. The same thing can't be said uh, about the EFF. It is uh, very it is disingenuous for parties who pretend to be Marxist to present government policy choices in combating COVID-19 <laughs> as a choice between either saving lives or saving livelihoods. That simplistic uh, choice is just not available for our government. Now, the question, Chair, uh, President, is that what has government learned from the consultations with various stakeholders that has helped it to arrive at the decision to implement the risk-adjusted strategy? And does the president believe that our people are capable of taking responsibility for their own health and well-being with the support of government? Or government, uh, do they need a nanny state as uh, other uh, uh, political parties are suggesting? Thank you very much. Thank you, sir. The Honorable the President. Thank you, uh, Honorable Speaker. I'd like to start off by explaining uh, the decision, a difficult decision that we took to answer questions online through this platform. Soon after answering these questions, I have to participate and lead a process at a continental level, which is being done on a platform 
that is quite different from other platforms, but which only exists where I am. I have to lead a process of launching the continental procurement platform that we are putting together, which is going to be responding to COVID-19. We agonize quite a lot about whether I should come to parliament or do it from this base where I am. It is only for that reason that we soon after this, in fact, 30 minutes after this, an hour thereafter, I have to join other heads of state to launch this platform. I truly apologize. I would have wanted to be in parliament. But coming to Honorable Mthaule's question, Honorable Speaker, in arriving at a risk-adjusted strategy, we consulted quite extensively, and we listened to quite a number of formations around the country. And in fact, one could say, didn't we over-consult? But we felt it was necessary to hear the views of various stakeholders in our country. And in our consultation with each, when it came to their own sectors, they said they are prepared and able to risk adjust, to adjust the risks, respond to the risks, and mitigate the risks that would obtain in the opening of any sector or any economic activity. And in our process of consultation, we were satisfied. And in fact, we were heartened by the manner in which the various leaders of the various sectors were coming forward with suggestions themselves. But what was even more heartening was the fact that they were prepared to bear the cost, to bear the cost of even setting up third hospitals, setting up isolation centers, if it was found that any of the people who either work in various places or go there are then isolated and can get the treatment. So we didn't just fly blindly into this. It was through consultation and thorough risk adjustment. And Role player said, we now accept that living with coronavirus is going to be part of our existence. We now have to acclimatize. We now have to embrace it and live with it as much as we possibly can. And utilize the tools that the Medical Advisory Committee has said we should have in our toolbox and all those measures which I've spoken about ad nauseum, if they are followed and if they are adhered to, we would be able to have a proper risk-adjusted strategy that will enable us to coexist with the virus. Thank you, Speaker. Thank you. Mr. President, we now proceed to question number four. Question number four was put to you by the Honorable F. Jacobs. Mr. President. Thank you, Honorable Speaker. 
Honorable members, just before the coronavirus outbreak in our country, Cabinet had approved the Township and Rural Entrepreneurship Program. This program is aimed at putting township and rural enterprises at the center of economic growth. According to research commissioned by the Department of Small Business Development, the informal sector has a central role in the South African economy as it accounts for 18% of total employment and contributes towards the livelihoods of millions of South Africans. The pandemic has assisted the implementation of this critical intervention which seeks to bring marginalized people and areas into the mainstream of the economy. As part of our package of responses to the pandemic, we have been providing financial and non-financial assistance to the informal sector to cushion workers from the economic effects of COVID-19. We've also taken measures to support households that rely on income from informal businesses by topping up social grants over a six month period and introducing a special COVID-19 grant of 350 rand a month over six months for unemployed people. Financial assistance to informal businesses has taken the form of grants, of loans and credit facilities that informal businesses can access to sustain their businesses. The non-financial interventions include business development, support services that help informal businesses to improve their business management capabilities. This will assist informal businesses should they wish to make the transition to micro, small and medium-sized businesses in the formal sector. This would make it easier for them to benefit from government incentives, SMME programs and procurement opportunities. Now the Department of Small Business Development has introduced programs that are targeted at specific subsectors of the informal economy. This informal economy which other people have called the second economy. To cite some examples, over the medium term, these programs aim to support 100,000 spaza shops and general dealers, 50,000 artisan, artisanry businesses, 15,000 hairdressers, beauticians, and other personal care businesses, 50,000 vegetable street vendors and butcheries and 10,000 informal restaurants. I learned the other day that we've got some 70,000 restaurants in our country and we are now focusing on those that we never see, that are not registered, but that serve the majority of our people. Other programs include the small-scale automotive aftermarket support scheme to support 5,000 informal businesses over 12 months and the bakeries and confectionery support program targeting 3,500 businesses over 12 months.
Some of these programs have already been implemented and are gaining traction. Through these programs, which prioritize Black-owned, as well as youth-owned and female-owned SMMEs, thousands of jobs have been saved and a significant number of SMMEs have been kept alive and in business. What COVID-19 has presented us with is a real opportunity to focus much more in practical terms on the ground in supporting all these informal businesses to a point where we now have entered another interesting terrain where they are being formalized. We now are building a database, a database of knowing who the operators are, which address they operate from, which street they are located in, and what their needs are, what type of service they offer. This has been a most empowering for government process because we've come much closer to where our people are conducting business. Just as with this offering of 350 rand, we've been able to get the record database of well over close on to 7 million people who have largely not even been in our grant system or any other system. We now have that database. And in other words, it's possible we could be the only country on the continent that has now built a really valuable database as government of knowing exactly what we are dealing with and what services and what interventions we can make. Now, on the business side, this is what COVID-19 has yielded for us. Honorable Speaker, I thank you. Thank you, Mr. President. Honorable Jacobs, you've got the first supplementary. Honorable Speaker, thank you very much, Honorable President, for your comprehensive recovery plan for small business and indeed for the informal sector. I'm very proud to be a South African currently because you are caring and a listening president. With all of these steps, certainly it will help uh, ease the burden, especially of the informal sector. The follow-up follow question. The follow-up question that I have, how will we ensure that government through the public-private partnerships we increase by South Africa buy local, local is lacquer, and increase localization through our municipalities, public-private procurement, and ensure that we give more opportunities to township and rural economies. Thank you, sir. The Honorable the President. Honorable uh, Speaker and Honorable Members, we, through these interventions that we, we are embarking on, one of the things that even our Ministry of 
small business development is stressing on a continuous basis that we want localization to be the order of the day. The Ministry of Trade and Industry and Competition is also stressing that to a point where they are actually going through the list of products that we procure from offshore. And they are now dutifully going to the various companies and even small medium enterprise and say, why are we continuing to buy this and this and this offshore? And as we ask the questions, those companies and operators raise their heads and say, you are absolutely right. And that is the way in which we begin the process of reindustrializing our economy, boosting manufacturing, and beginning to move in the way of gaining efficiencies so that we become competitive and com compete firstly in our own country and secondly on the African continent as we set up the Africa continental free trade area and as we, we go global. And I've met a number of young people as well, young people who are committed to the localization approach and who are saying, yes, we would like support, but what we are now moving towards is to sell South Africa, make things in South Africa and sell them globally. And this is the way, the new wave, and we are going to be propagating this, spreading the message, and also saying to those that we even give incentives that we would want to support more those businesses that are going to buy local so that we can create jobs. Other countries have grown their economies by localizing, making sure that the jobs remain in country, and that is the trajectory that we are on now. And even as we embark on uh, private-public partnerships, that is precisely the message that we will be pushing. Localization has to be the order of the day. And I'd like to encourage South Africans that even as we buy anything, turn the label around and see where it is made. And I'd like our officials to be doing exactly the same. We need to be asking ourselves where items are made and also be asking ourselves if we can make it here and begin to advance to being competitive, being able to make it cheaper. And South Africans have the capability, we have got the innovation of all this, we can make things a lot cheaper. I've told the story of how one day when I was walking, I met a young man who said, I've been supported as the president by the IDC. We've been running a business importing uh, medical supplies. And since COVID-19, and when announcement was made that we want to localize, I went off and admittedly said, I've imported a machine 
I am now making this item and that item and that item, which I used to import, I am now making it here in South Africa. And he said, that's not all, Mr. President. I now employ 75 more people. And he was saying, he's starting his manufacturing base as we were opening level three. And he said, I've been getting ready and I'm now going to make these items uh, here in the country. And they happened to be gloves, they happened to be uh, masks, they happened to be PPEs, and uh, he's now going to make them. We are now going to put that person on the continental platform, which we're launching tonight. Continental platform so that he can then sell. So this is going to start a wave, a wave that we must all encourage, rather than scoff, rather than dismiss, rather than write off. We say it is a wave that one, we need to be aware of, two, we need to encourage, three, we need to support in all ways that we can. Thank you, Honorable Speaker. Thank you, Mr. President. The second supplementary to you is by the Honorable Jenner. Honorable Jenner. Thank you, Madam Speaker. Mr. President, the Presidential Job Summit of 2018 resolved to create 275,000 jobs per year. Taking into account that there has been little movement on this target and the loss of potentially millions of existing jobs due to the COVID-19 pandemic, is it wise for your Minister of Employment and Labour to at every possible opportunity vilify the employers of South Africa? And does your government realise that there can be no employees and absolutely no job creation without employers and sufficient support to them? I thank you. Mr. President. Thank you, Honorable Speaker. I have not been aware of any verification. What I have been aware of is where the Minister of uh, Labor and Employment has been urging employers, particularly in the time of COVID, to make sure that they safeguard the safety of their workers. Now, some of these things are rather painful when one looks at what some employers have not been doing. Minister of uh, Mineral Resources and Energy reports that he went to a mine where infections had been reported. And when he got there, he found that there was no sanitization, there were no masks that were in place, and all the protocols that we have spoken about were not in place. And next door to that mine was another one where everything that we had spoken about was in place, and their levels of infections were much lower. Now, this is precisely what the minister would have been responding to. And I don't see it as vilification, but I see it as encouraging all employers in our country to put the lives of their workers first, to make sure that we safeguard the, li the lives of our workers as we seek to advance their livelihoods. We cannot be focusing on just opening up companies and disregarding the safety measures and the safety protocols that need to be in place. 
That is precisely the approach that I believe Minister Mercy would have been taking. Just as Minister Mantashe took exactly the same approach when he came across a most worrying situation in a particular mine. So we're saying we need to be working together, we need to be cooperating, and we need to heed the word that we should make places of employment safe, we should secure the lives of our employees. Thank you, Honorable Speaker. Thank you, Mr. President. The third supplementary question will be put to you, Mr. President, by the Honorable Ngwezi. Honorable Ngwezi. Thank you very much, Honorable Speaker. And uh, Honorable President, you have mentioned that in the whole world, small businesses and rather informal economies are able to employ more than 60% to 70% of our people. And we can't overemphasize that as the IFP and, and members of parliament. I would like to know from you, as you were giving answers to this question, that on the lessons learned uh, in addressing the, the difficulties that small businesses and informal traders have in this country, do we have a permanent strategy that will actually assist small businesses uh, in getting finance? Because you will find that uh, those who are supposed to give them money, the requirements are not friendly to small business uh, uh, enterprises. They, they can't get finance because of the requirements that are put there. So the question is, on the lessons learned, uh, do we have a permanent strategy to address the difficulties that these institutions are facing? Thank you. Should I answer, Honorable Speaker? Yes, Mr. President, I give you the go ahead. Thank you. <laughs> and Shut who up. are you? And who is that? I will wait for the speaker to give me the go ahead. No, answer. We are listening. Answer. We'll no, thank you, Mr. President. Wait for the speaker, not these ones. They are not speakers. They are not speakers. They are not speakers. The speaker will come through. We're not even paying people 350 rand when I just fuller. My apologies, Honorable Mayor. I phone in the 350. Order. 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 Who's speaker? I am back. Well, I'm calling. That's why I was also asking you where you have went. Order. Honorable Speaker, where, where, where you? Order. 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 Order.
Reverend, did you get the gist of Honorable Nguese's supplementary question? Yes, I did, Honorable Speaker. Please, Honorable Speaker. President. Thank you, Honorable Speaker. Honorable members, yes, I got the gist of the question. The challenge of finance for small, medium enterprises is a serious one. If you talk to many people who lead small, medium enterprises, a question about what their challenges are, they will tell you that finance is one of the key ones. But they have other challenges and they have other needs as well. The need for finance is a big one, it's an urgent one, and it's an important one. And we have recognized that this being an important need, it needs to be addressed. And it is for this reason that the Department of Small Business Development is setting up a fund which is going to help to respond to this. But at the same time, we're actually urging the banks, the banks to finance small medium enterprises. And in this period of COVID-19, the 200 billion rand that has been set aside has also been set aside to assess, uh, to assist rather, small medium enterprises. And we want our small medium enterprises to approach financial institutions, to be able to get funding from this money that has been guaranteed by government in which the central bank has also played an important role. And through this, we want to start deepening the culture in the financial services sector to support small medium enterprises. I've been very pleased to see how the National Youth Development Agency has been able to assist businesses that have been started by young people. When we did our SONA announcements, we did say that through the NYDA, we would like young people to start and be supported to start a thousand businesses. 500 of those have now been supported and they are functioning. We now are looking forward to the additional 500. And the support measures have ranged from, yes, financial support to advice assistance, to market assistance, and to a whole range of others, including mentoring. And this is precisely what small, medium enterprises need. But they also need to be well supported by their own government so that government is able to use them for the various procurement uh, processes that government gets involved in. And it is in this area that even set aside should be the order of the day so that small medium enterprises are able, once they have business, to go to financial institutions with offtake agreements, knowing that their businesses are sustainable and they are therefore fundable. So through this, we want to develop 
a new culture, a new culture that is going to be very supportive to small medium enterprises. And that is, it is for this reason that we are also surging into yes, the rural areas, in the, to the townships, to support those, those businesses. And the support will vary from financial to mentoring, to market assistance, to business assistance, to fin financial management assistance. So we are now saying we want to be a fully fledged entrepreneurial state, which will support businesses because it is through support of businesses that we are able to increase employment of our people. Thank you, Speaker. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. President. The last supplementary for question number four will be put to you, Mr. President, by the leader of the opposition from the chamber. Thank you, Madam Speaker. Mr. President, let's be clear. Small, medium, and micro enterprises are the engine room of job creation. Let's also be clear, Mr. President, that government has not released the data, as you alluded to earlier. We have eight PIA applications outstanding. Let's also be clear, Mr. President, that your response has not been science-led. The scientists were telling you weeks ago to open the economy, and the lockdown had done its work. Now, Mr. President, even though it came two months too late, and yet the fact that your protracted hard lockdown has now severely damaged the economy, you last night announced that significant parts of the economy will now be reopened. Now, the lockdown is all but over in name only. You're the only person who still believes that we're in lockdown advanced level three, or whatever that means. And given this, why do you insist on keeping us in a state of disaster and what can you do under a state of disaster that you cannot do under the ordinary course of governance? Uh, my money was better. Man. Hmm? The order. Mr. President, you have the floor. Thank you, uh, Speaker, and thank you, Honorable Members. We have given full consideration to how the progression from level five to level three, and even the advanced level of level three is continuing to open up the economy. And we have been able in consultations with the players in each of the sectors to agree that to have done it earlier would have Yes, cause problems. It is better to move on a gradual basis. And the real players on the ground in those sectors are the ones who have come forward to say, we believe it is now time. I've had extensive meetings, Honorable Stian Hazen, with a number of those players, and they are the ones who said, Maybe not now. I mean, a very good example was with religious leaders. They came forward and said, we want to pray, we are ready to pray. And when we did finally accede on a risk-adjusted basis, they were the first to say, we actually think we were not as ready as we thought we were. And so therefore we want to delay and we will even be delaying right through to September. 
Now, all modeling scenarios have been made public through press conferences by health, as well as by the website of health. Those models have been demonstrated and they've been shown. And in the end, you ask why are we keeping the country in the state of disaster? It is precisely the answer I gave earlier. The state of lockdown has given us an opportunity to get ready, has given us an opportunity to ensure that our health services can adjust. And as we see now in a number of places, number of places, we have not been as ready as we should have. The Western Cape is a case in point. And we're now beginning to see that also in the Eastern Cape. But indeed, the Western Cape is a case in point because the level of infections that are keeping, uh, are rising there is in part because a number of processes that should have been in place were not in place at the time when they should have. So it is a risk adjusted process. And I can assure you, the country is not going to be kept under lockdown forever and in a day. We are going to keep adjusting as we manage the risk downwards, yes, to level two, and finally to level one, and finally, to finally say we must now agree that we are living with this virus and we must get on with our lives, with lives on the safe side and running the economy also on the safe side. Thank you, Honorable Speaker. Thank you, Mr. Madam Speaker. Speaker. Point of order. What is your point of order, Dagestinism? The point of order, Madam Speaker, was my question was very specific to the President. It was, what can you do under the Disaster yes, Management Act? Okay, just, just a second. Under the order of order. order. Totally out of order. Look Honorable at you. I'm quite capable. I will respond to Dagestinism as soon as I've heard what he has to say. Dagestinism, can you finish your point of order? Madam Speaker, my point of order was that I asked the President a specific question. What can he do under the Disaster Management Act that he cannot do under the ordinary course of government? Now that you the lockdown... You must give the answer to that. I need to clarify and pay Honorable Zulu, can I respond to that? You put a supplementary question you were responded to. If you are not happy with that response from the President, please put it in writing and let us see where it goes. But you cannot, after you have been given a response, then demand the response that you think <coughs> he should have given you. Can we proceed? We are proceeding, honorable members. Honorable Josie, what point of order are you raising? The eyes, boy. Honorable McLeod, you will withdraw that. Honorable Josie, what's your point of order? Yeah, Honorable Speaker, with the greatest respect, can you save us from Honorable Lindwe with harassment on the virtual platform? We are tired with her now. Please honorable, remind her to keep quiet. Now you must keep quiet. Honorable, honorable Zulu, Honorable Lindwe yes. it is sustained. Honorable Lindy Zulu, please. Thank you, Honorable Kami. President, we are moving to number five. 
No, take honorable, it. No, honorable members, no. Question number five, honorable president, was put to you by the honorable Singh. Mr. President. Honorable speaker, honorable members, there are sufficient law enforcement agencies to deal with incidents of corruption. These include institutions like the National Prosecuting Authority, the Directorate for Priority Crime Investigation in the SAPS, and the Special Investigating Unit. The Office of the Auditor General and the Financial Intelligence Center also play important roles in detecting instances of corruption. The AG will be taking additional measures, as I said earlier, including proactive auditing, as I said earlier, to ensure the proper use of COVID-19 funding. We've also established the NPA's investigating directorate to focus on corruption cases arising from the Zondo Commission of Inquiry into State Capture and other commissions. We also have a progressive legislative framework for addressing the escalating number of investigations, prosecution, and the trial of serious forms of corruption. These include the Prevention of Organized Crime Act and the Prevention and Combating of Corrupt Activities Act. I'm advised that the Justice Criminal Prevention and Security Cluster is undertaking work to look at how best we can revamp our criminal justice system, which will include the strengthening of the governance arrangements, intelligence-driven and prosecution-led investigations, as well as mechanisms for the recovery of ill-gotten proceeds. We therefore take the view that the establishment of a new independent Chapter 9 institution to focus on grand corruption may not be necessary at this stage. However, we should continue to consider all available options to ensure that we eradicate corruption across society. I thank you, Honorable Speaker. Thank you, Mr. President. Um, the first supplement goes to the Honorable Singh. Thank you very much, Honorable Speaker, and thank you, Honorable President, uh, for your response. However, in your response, I recall about a year ago, when I asked you the question, you said it was a very refreshing idea. I hope the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic has not made this idea disappear into the ICU and eventually disappear altogether. Because, Honorable President, I believe it is now more than ever before that we need to ensure that the very limited resources that we have at our disposal and which we now require to deal with the COVID-19 pandemic, which you said so earlier, Mr. President, are protected. They are protected from thieves within the public service and the private sector, and they're protected from those that want to defraud the state and the poor taxpayers of their money. Now, Honorable President, the response that uh, you gave us this afternoon is exactly the response I received in a written question to the Honorable Minister of Justice. 
where he mentioned some of these instruments and organs that you've spoken about today. We all know very well, Honorable President, that some of these organs were captured. The NPA, for example, was captured. We know that many of these organs operate at the behest of Parliament and the executive, in that whilst their decisions may be impartial when they consider a particular matter, their existence depends heavily on the resources they receive from Parliament and the executive. So politicians have an influence over how they operate, not on the independence, but on their capacity to operate. So my question is, Mr. President, please don't kill the idea because it is needed now more than ever before that we need an independent institution to deal with the scourge in our society. Thank you. Thank you, Speaker. Mr. President. Thank you, Honorable Speaker. Uh, I will say to Honorable Singh, I continue to see it as a refreshing idea. It is still refreshing, and it is an idea that I think we should, yes, keep on the table, and particularly so that the criminal justice cluster is looking at proposals on how to revamp our criminal justice system. So hopefully the idea will remain fresh also in your mind, as it will remain fresh in my own mind, and not in ICU. Thank you, Honorable Speaker. Thank you, Mr. President. The leader of the opposition in the chamber gets the second supplementary. Mr. President, you struggled with my earlier question on the Disaster Management Act, so let me ask you an easier one. At the beginning of the lockdown, in your public address to the nation, you indicated that you would deal harshly uh, with COVID-related corruption. Can you tell me how many ANC councillors have been arrested for food parcel manipulation during the course of the COVID crisis? There is a saying, charity begins at home. Uh, what, have you take, what action have you taken as a leader of your party? Mr. President. Thank you very much, Honorable Speaker. I will take a rain check on that one because the information of uh, food parcel misdemeanors is in the process of being put together. But going back to your earlier question, I thought I had answered your question and I'm prepared to reiterate because the lockdown is being managed downwards from level five to level one finally. And the disaster management provisions remain the tools that government has to continue managing this lockdown. What we also announced yesterday adds up to lessening and loosening restrictions. So the Disaster Management Act is still absolutely necessary. And that is why its time frame was extended. For as long as we are managing COVID-19 or the coronavirus, we will continue to manage it in terms of the disaster management because it gives us the optionality, it gives us the possibility uh, and of course the authority to craft the rules and regulations that should continue 
guiding us as we manage the virus in the way that we are managing it. And thank you very much, Honorable Speaker. Thank you, Mr. President. The third supplementary goes to the Honorable Maudoy. Thank you very much, Speaker. To the President, we agree that uh, the Office of the Public Protector is empowered to investigate both state affairs and public administration. We also agree that the National Prosecuting Authority is empowered to investigate and prosecute crimes. But President, the problem is not the incapacity of those offices. The problem is the lack of resources. And secondly, the political interference as demonstrated by the conduct of your executive, Mr. President, towards the Office of the Public Protector in particular. And Mr. President, to you, uh, we've seen you've dragged the public prosecutor to courts and various other- Honorable Maltre, you may, you may lay whatever, but the question you are putting as on the supplementary is supposed to be related to the principal question. I don't understand why you are impatient with me. I've not even gone beyond 30 seconds. Because you are time bound to put a supplementary question. You are not. I've got one minute, Speaker. Can you relax? You've got what? You've got now, what? The president no, no, no. Honorable Mountain, what do you say you have? I've got 60 seconds. That's 60 seconds now. Yes. I'm on it, Honorable Speaker. I'm well aware. Please. Now, the president. Ticking. <laughs> now, President, can you guarantee that you will back off, you and your executive will back off and allow the public protector, Memo Kobani, to do her job? Please. Thank you. Let, let's yes. feel trouble on, on a point of order, Speaker. What's your point of order, Honorable Ndozi? Honorable Speaker, I think the way in which you dealt with the Honorable Mauto is really unfortunate. You have been indulging all members who have been asking questions, like Honorable John Steen. And now you are rough tackling uh, Honorable Mauto. It's very unfair, Honorable Speaker. I really need you to reconsider and not push her in that way. It will be seen as both anti-women, but also generally frustrating the opposition. Yes. yes. Honorable, no, no. Yeah. They're anti-EFF, this people. Honorable Mkalipe, that mic will be put up. Honorable members, a member who is not the principal poser of the question, has a minute to make a supplementary. I was telling Honorable Maudwe to gravitate towards putting that question because her time was running out. Now, we will keep to the rules with every one of you. Honorable Stainazen will keep to the time, but also remember, you are not expected to bring a new question as a supplementary question. Please remember that. Honorable Mr. President. Thank you, Honorable Speaker. I would like to put it on record quite categorically that the executive will not seek to interfere with the work in any way, shape, or form of any of our Chapter 9 institutions. Those institutions 
are part of the constitutional infrastructure of our democracy. They are independent and our democracy dictates that they should not be hampered in any way whatsoever in the work that they do. And I can say categorically that the executive does not have the disposition to want to interfere in the work of any of those institutions. And even if we wanted to, we would not be able to because our actions would then be unconstitutional. We have to act within the parameters and the strictures of our constitution at all times. And in the end, if those institutions ever had an inkling that the executive was interfering, they would have all the rights to approach the highest court in our land to raise the issue of executive interference, executive overreach, and executive hampering the work that they do. That we will not do. Thank you, Honorable Speaker. Thank you, Mr. President. The last supplementary of question five is put by the Honorable S.M. Swart in the chamber. Thank you, Speaker. Thank you, Honorable President. Arising from your response, as you indicated earlier, urgent steps need to be taken now to protect COVID-19 relief funds. And this includes real-time auditing, which the ACDP supports. You also referred to the SIU unit, which has extensive powers, including to bring cases before the special tribunal to cancel contracts and recover funds. Now, the SIU recently briefed Parliament on COVID-related corruption. However, as we know, it and other units are constrained by funding challenges and the SIU, the protected approval process for its proclamations. President, will you ensure that sufficient funding is made available to the SIU and similar units, and more importantly, ensure that the presidential proclamation sought by the SIU to investigate COVID-19-related corruption is approved by your office without delay? These measures can further protect COVID-19 funds. I thank you. Thank you, sir. The Honorable the President. Honorable Speaker, my answer is in the affirmative. Yes, we want to financially empower all these investigative units. And from time to time, we're able to sit down with them and see the gaps in the funding and their needs. And we've always insisted that we need to capacitate them financially so that they can have all the personnel that they need to be able to do their work. So that we will continue to do. And when it comes to proclamations, yes, those proclamations will be signed, will be activated so that, particularly in the period of COVID-19, so that we are able to go to the gist and the bottom of misdemeanors that may be committed under the guise of COVID-19. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. President. Your last question for the day. 
was put to you by the Honorable Khrunavald. Mr. President. Honorable Speaker, Honorable Members, even before the coronavirus pandemic, South Africa's economy has been experiencing low growth over a number of years. Despite significant progress since the advent of democracy, our country remains characterized by high levels of poverty, inequality, and unemployment. The pandemic has exposed some of the structural fault lines in our economy, including the vulnerability of small businesses and also those businesses that are in the informal sector, the informal economy rather. Therefore, as we repair the damage that has been caused by the pandemic, we will be implementing measures to address the key structural constraints in the economy. These structural constraints include the mismatch between skills that we have and the skills that are required in a 21st century economy and the spatial patterns of development that keep millions of our people, workers, and all far away from workplaces. We will also need to address the reality of a poorly developed small and medium business sector within an economy that has large concentration of market share and ownership, the ownership residing in just a few white hands. We will need to provide access to capital for many young entrepreneurs. We will need to provide this access to capital also to women-led and owned enterprises, as well as black industrialists. As we build the economy after coronavirus, we will speed up structural reforms that can unleash enterprise and capitalize on the digital economy and the larger markets that are possible through the African continental free trade area. But we will also seek to establish new sectors of our economy. Sectors that will be given to employing more people, sectors that will be able to absorb many people who are unemployed. We will also need to focus on the current sectors of our economy through finalizing industry master plans that have been developed in sectors such as the automobile, manufacturing, the clothing and textiles, the poultry production, and the sugar industry. They include the reforms in energy policy and the decision to release spectrum in the market and the competition market inquiries that are beginning to have an impact on 
data prices. We need to focus on areas like trading spaces, which is part of the spatial development and healthcare provision. Now, if we are to achieve an inclusive economy, we need to deal with the historical injustices in relation to land ownership, in relation to access to it and the use of land, expediting land reform for a more productive economy without weakening our fiscal position will require, among other things, a social compact between the state and the private sector, particularly landowners, on how we are going to go about implementing our land reform policies. The initiative by companies to donate land to the state, and there are quite a number of those, is an indication of what is possible if we share a common vision as a country. Our approach must be diverse. We must be able to utilize various options to empower our people and to make sure that land is in the hands of our people. Another example is the PALS initiative in the Wittenberg Valley, where commercial farmers have been working with local communities and farm workers to promote land reform. Government is working with the agricultural industry to develop a sector plan, which will focus on growth areas such as the livestock, wool and grain industries. I have been quite interested in recent sales of livestock where we have seen a number of black farmers participating in buying livestock in larger numbers than we've had before, which indicates that an inclusive targeted initiative could have the potential to transform even not only the livestock, but the grain sector of the industry and many other parts of the agricultural industry. The release of state-owned land and post-settlement support has commenced. Over 100,000 hectares have already been allocated to successful beneficiaries. And the intention is to release all the remaining 700,000 hectares by the end of the financial year. The deputy president has been working doggedly and it, with, uh, with uh, the, the various ministers in piloting this process. Transformation must be pursued with great vigor so that we have more equitable outcomes and a greater number of jobs. It is possible to do it 
in a number of sectors of our industry. Above all, building a more inclusive economy with, will enhance longer-term growth, productivity, and the development that we all want to see. And if all of us as role players play our role and be bold and be committed to ensuring that we actually move South Africa forward through ensuring that there is inclusive growth, it can be done. I thank you. Thank you, Mr. President. The Honorable Frunabal. Thank you, Akbaru Speaker. Dear E, Honorable President, when you address the South African uh, National Editorial Forum or Editors Forum, you said that COVID-19 provided a golden opportunity to get rid of the colonial and apartheid economy. And that's why my question is specifically of how are you going to do it? You've made a lot of statements now. And I think everybody in South Africa knows by now what you want to do. You want to restructure. But unfortunately, we don't get the detail. And that is what I mean by how are you going to do it? By referring to the golden opportunity, Honorable President, I think indirectly you actually say that we cannot blame the colonial past and apartheid for the future of the economy. And my follow-up question is as follows. Don't you think this is a golden opportunity to get rid of black economic empowerment, get rid of affirmative action? You've asked the youth to get involved in building South Africa. Does that include all the youth? Does that include black, white, colored, and Indian. And seeing in the light of the State of Secretary your of... Time, your time, Honorable Speaker. Honorable Speaker, sorry. I thought that I've got two minutes, and I've got a clock right, my, and it's at this moment not even two minutes. Yes. Can I ask Ned my last uh, follow-up, please? Your, your conclude, please. Thank you. Uh, the last uh, follow-up, uh, Honorable President, is in the light of the words of the State of Secretary for the United States that said that expropriation without compensation will be disastrous for the economy of South Africa. Do you still continue with that? I thank you, Honorable Speaker. Thank you, Honorable President. Thank you, sir. The Honorable the President. Thank you, Honorable Speaker. The answers to those questions are fairly straightforward. Black, BEE, Black Economic Empowerment, the broad-based Black Economic Empowerment policy thrust of this government, if anything, needs to be enhanced. We need to ensure that Black people who were forever under apartheid rule and colonial rule excluded from playing an important role in the economy of their own country 
are given their rightful position in playing an important role in the economy of their country. This is something that has to be done without any fail. We cannot continue having an economy that so excludes the majority of the people and believe that we can grow the economy. I've often said, Honorable Khunovo, our economy actually is a damaged economy because it is not utilizing all the resources or what it can utilize, the present power resources, the financial resources, and the natural resources of the country. We are not utilizing to good effect to drive our economy to move forward. It's like we've got a vehicle with 12 cylinders. It's just been operating forever and in a day on four cylinders. It cannot be. And the only way we can is to bring black people into the mainstream of the economy. And because they were deliberately excluded through laws, through policies, through conventions and practices, we've got to ensure that we implement the provisions of our constitution. And the constitution says in order for us to attain equality, we've got to have legislative measures that will enable us to do precisely that. So BEE is here to stay. We must bring black people into the economy of our country. Otherwise, we will continue having an economy that continues to misfire. You cannot have an economic situation where the majority of the people are excluded. They don't have ownership. They don't have control. They don't even have management. It should be a shame, a shame on those who have always held power and ownership that we still have a situation like this. Affirmative action as well is the policy of the government and it will continue. We have extended a hand that on land reform, our constitutional committee, the parliamentary committee must proceed to finalize, to finalize the work that they are doing. We want to see that committee reappointed so that it finalizes. And once it finalizes that, we will all be very clear on the issue of the expropriation of land without compensation. We will also be clear on how it is going to be done and how it is going to be effected. I think as South Africans, we must accept that we've got to change. Because if we do not do so, it is those who have been excluded from the economy of our country who are going to respond. And then all could be lost. The best that we can do as South Africans is to work together. We need to work together to say, how do we secure a common future together going forward? Because the current situation 
Honorable Grunewald, is untenable. We've got to restructure. And those who say everything is fine and honky-dory are actually living in a world that, you know, is, is very strange to the majority of our people. Our people are yearning for inclusion. They are yearning for participating in the economy of their country. They're yearning to have the skills that they were denied in the past. They are yearning to be owners. They are yearning to be managers of the economy. They are yearning to participate. And if there ever was a time for us to give them that opportunity, this is the opportunity. What I would have wanted to hear from Honorable Grunewald is for Honorable Grunewald and his ilk coming forward and saying, like many others are doing, and saying, we realize that we've got a historic problem. Apartheid excluded the majority of black South Africans from land ownership, from ownership in the economy, this is what we think we should do. I would have preferred for them to come forward with proposals rather than come forward with barriers, impediments, problems. We want solutions. And our people have been patient forever and in a day. And they've been waiting for solutions. And I'm saying, Honorable Grunewald, let us work together. Not sham solutions, but real solutions that are going to be impactful on the livelihoods of our people. How do we get an inclusive economy should be what preoccupies you in your mind and in everything you do, rather than let us continue holding on to the privileges that white people have always had in this country. Everybody wants to be privileged. And the past dispensation that we had in this country, which gave privileges to white people, is not sustainable. It has actually served this country very, very badly. Our economy is where it is today because this country in the past focused on just a few and giving privileges to a few people and not advancing privileges to all. And the sharing was just a few people who shared. And we say the only way to move forward, <clears throat> and Honorable Kundala, that's where the world is going today. The world is saying, Let's have inclusive growth. Let us have growth that will advance everybody's interest because it has been seen that where you are actually partial and just look after the sectional interests of a few, your country never moves forward. Now, we want South Africa to move forward. And the only way to do so is with inclusive growth on everything, on land, on the ownership of companies, on everything, we must be inclusive. Thank you, Honorable Speaker. Thank you, Mr. President. The second supplementary 
on this question goes to the Honorable Retired General Bantu Holomisa. Forty General, you are not audible. Are you happy? Yes, sir. Thank you, uh, Madam Speaker. Honorable President, cool down in Chagas. Mute him, mute him. I'm coming up with solutions. Given that since 1994, there has been no consensus on a macroeconomic policy for South Africa, with differing views even within the tripartite alliance, that had impacted on the implementation of many policies, including the national plan today. Also taking into consideration that using pension monies with the noble objective or noble goal of empowering black people had serious challenges as we have seen through party commission. Beneficiaries who became instant millionaires and billionaires are not servicing their loans. Well-respected struggle stalwarts have been used as fronts for companies such as Tainhoff and others. Others have partnered with their friends outside South Africa without benefit for poor South Africans in terms of job creation. Today, billions of workers' pension monies have been written off. That said, as part of positioning our economy, sir, post-COVID-19, what are your views on, one, establishing a separate national fund to drive the economic empowerment and also to hold an, an urgent economic endeavor where all stakeholders can discuss the macroeconomy with land at the apex of the debate? Thank you, sir. Thank you, General. The Honorable the President. Honorable Speaker, Honorable Members, the idea of setting up a fund to help to fund those who need finance either to run businesses and where we need to make financial interventions must always be seen as a good thing. Because what the economy needs is funds, finance. And what many people want to be key players in the economy need is finance. So if we can get the financial resources to fund various um, interventions, that would be a good thing. And this is also so important because, you see, our country has a few financial institutions. Many other countries have a number, a plethora of either banks or financial institutions. We have four or five banking institutions. If one refuses you funding, you go to the next one, they refuse, you all find that they, they all refuse. But if you have more, you'll find that one of those many in the country will be able to give you funding. Because yes, in the end funding is a competitive area. So the more funding institutions we have, 
the more we would be able to have financial capital that people can rely on and opt for to fund their businesses and move on. As regards an economic endeavor, in the end, there's nothing wrong in getting a number of key players in our economy to sit together in an economic endeavor where we would be able to exchange views and thoughts on the economic trajectory that our country should embark upon. But it should also be an economic endeavor that will come up with solutions and not come up with complaints, lamentations. It should be one that focuses on the trajectory we should embark on going forward. Many people keep saying we are sick and tired of talk shops. And indeed, to a large extent, they are absolutely correct. This is now the time for action. This is now the time to embark on implementation. We implement what will take this country forward. So whilst one broadly accepts it, we should not revert back to having endless talk shops and where we have lamentations. We should be action-oriented. And that is why I responded to the earlier question as I did that, let us come forward with solutions. No longer fears, no longer doubts, no longer problems, impediments. Let us all realize that we've got a challenge. And as we face a challenge, much as we may be coming from different viewpoints, different viewpoints from the left, different viewpoints from a conservative angle, different viewpoints from the middle of the road people, we must all come forward with ideas that will take the country forward. But my view would be it should all be premised on putting practical solutions on the table rather than lamentations, impediments on the table. It would be on that basis that I would be supportive of Honorable Olomisa's idea. Thank you, Honorable Speaker. Thank you, Mr. President. The third supplementary goes to the Honorable Gungu Bele. He's in the chamber. Honorable Gungu Bele. Thank you, Honorable Speaker. Thanks, Mr. President, for addressing the Parliament through the number of these questions. It appears that FF plus, whenever they talk about eliminating the colonial legacy, it provokes fear that they will be excluded. Is it not the time maybe to demonstrate that our, our destination is a nation there is no mutual exclusivity between that and correcting the inequities of the past. And secondly, that uh, because we've got a fiscal framework, correcting the issues of the land, our fiscal framework is the compass. Can the president address the country on that? Thank you very much. Thank you. The Honorable the President. 
Thank you, Honorable Speaker. Uh, the issue of inclusivity should never be seen as being a racially loaded construct. The inclusivity that we speak about is premised on non-racialism, on including all the people of South Africa. And this is where our Freedom Charter was absolutely correct in saying that South Africa belongs to all who live in it. Our past rulers, or the past misrulers of this country, thought that South Africa belonged just to a few. And we say South Africa belongs to all who live in it. And therefore, what we seek to do as we correct the imbalances of the past, including the ownership and the control of the economy, including the ownership of land and everything, we seek to do it on an inclusive basis to say, let us all work together to address this problem that we now have at hand. And what is the problem which we need to work together on? Up till today, 72% of farmland and agricultural holdings belongs to white people. And I would ask, is that a correct situation to have? Or should we have a much more inclusive type of situation where we do what the Freedom Charter says, the land shall be shared amongst all who work it. And this is what we want to see. And that, as Honorable Gugubele is seeking to say, is that it is all about black and white people. It does not exclude the white people in our country. We seek inclusiveness. And that is why I am saying, let us all come forward on the basis of inclusiveness. And we should not be propagating fear amongst any section of South African society. Why do you do it then? We want to say, all of us as South Africans, have a share in this country and let us work together to ensure that we all share in the wealth of our country. In the past, it was not done. So let us come forward with solutions. Now, what do I welcome, Honorable Khunabal? I, I welcome those entities, those companies, those individuals who come forward and say, we have these opportunities. We have these opportunities to train and advance the people of our country. We have these opportunities. We have these land holdings to share. We want to bring it forward so that we can all share and grow together. We see the certain assets of our country being underutilized. We've got the skills, the knowledge, and we would like those to be mutually shared. So it is mutual inclusivity rather than exclusivity that we need to focus on. And of course, 
As Honorable Gungubele says, much of what needs to happen in the end has to be based on the size of the cloth we have. The size of the cloth we have from a fiscal point of view, but there are a number of other opportunities that we can embark upon. I have been immensely, immensely touched by a number of companies that have come forward that have said, we've got land holdings that we don't use. We want these land holdings to be apportioned to black people and we are prepared to assist. We are prepared to even give infrastructure so that these land holdings can be utilized. That is something that should be welcomed. And I would like to see us all working towards that goal of inclusive growth rather than exclusive growth, of moving forward together as South Africans in regards to everything. And if we could do that, then South Africa will be a great country. The greatness of South Africa was held back by past policies. It is about time that South Africa becomes a great country and utilizes all the people, all the assets to have inclusive growth for all South Africans. On a point of order, Honorable Speaker. Um, Honorable President, have you, are you done with your response? Yes, okay. Honorable Speaker. Honorable Shibambo, what is your point of order? The point of order is that the President keeps on saying that we are pushing for white people to donate land to black people. Have we moved away from the expropriation of land without compensation? Oh, you're out of order yourself. Order. Because every time he's saying that, he's looking for white people to donate land. President never said that. You're out of order. Honorable Shabalala. Out of order. President never said Honorable Shabalala. Every time he speaks, he says that we're looking for white people to come and businesses are donating donations of land now. Honorable Shibambo. As mandated by parliament. No, Honorable Shibambo. doesn't deserve that airtime. Honorable Shibambo, you, you do know that you are taking a chance because you did hear what the president said. He started off with the need for us to revive that ad hoc committee. Honorable president, your last supplementary for the day comes from the leader of the opposition and he is in the chamber. The Honorable Stenazen. Thank you, Madam Speaker. I think it's a real shame, Mr. President, that you'd refer to the theft of food parcels as a misdemeanor. Misdemeanor is a parking offense. Stealing food parcels meant for the poor is plain corruption. It's very clear from your, it's very clear from your uh, responses today. Honorable, Honorable, Honorable Stenazen, may I just interrupt you? Are you on the last supplementary of the question put to the president by Honorable Kurnabat? I am indeed, Madam Speaker. It, I don't think it had anything to do with food parcels. Very What's clear. That... Please proceed with your supplementary on the last question, sir. Very clear from the president's response that he will not walk away from the job-killing policies that, and he is determined to double down on the very policies that have pushed 10 million people into the unemployment queue, that have kept people locked in poverty and kept out of opportunity in the country. So he wanted a progressive suggestion. Here's one for you, Mr. President. Turn your back on bailing out the SAA with 33 billion Rand 
and put that money directly into On a point of order, speaker. Surely the president would agree that a progressive agenda would be to scrap the 33 billion set for SAA's bailout and redirect that money to areas of the economy that will really create jobs and stimulate growth and development and lift people into opportunity. Honourable Ngozi, you said you had a point of order. Honourable Ngozi. Okay. I pass. Honourable uh, President. Honourable Speaker, Honorable Speaker uh, if Ngozi doesn't want to take his point of order, can I just, before the President answers, just sort of point of clarity, uh, the Honourable President said that we must come forward, and he specifically referred to me with proposals. Honourable I am still chairing this meeting. Can I then just ask if the Honourable President respond that I understood it correctly because I'm willing, I will give him a comprehensive proposal for an inclusive economy to build South Africa together. Uh, if I understood him correctly, that he will accept that. Thank you. You, you. you understood him to say that he wants people to bring proposals, but President, you can respond. Not about Thank you. Thank you, Honourable Speaker. I'm able to say very quickly, yes, I would welcome proposals from Honourable Frunewald. And I am serious in making this assertion, Honourable Frunewald. I am not politicking. I'm not playing to the gallery. I truly believe that the time has come, particularly at this moment when we now need to move our country out of this COVID-19 hole, to see how we can reset our economy, restructure our economy moving forward so that we can have inclusive growth where those who are currently feeling disheartened are able to be involved in the economy of their own country. So I am serious, we've got to address the situation of land, and I'd like to hear you on that as well. Where the majority of black people still do not have land, I want to hear what proposals you have. And to Honorable Shibambu, I have said very clearly, the committee that is dealing with the issue of section 25 of our constitution, expropriation of land without compensation, must be reappointed and finish its work. That is a very clear position that that committee must work on that because we do need to address the land question in our country without any fail. But I'm also saying that there are quite a number of South Africans who are coming forward with propositions, propositions that are changing lives, propositions where a number of options are being put on the table. Now, we need to look at the multiplicity of proposals that are on the table, including the one that the committee has to finalize, the parliamentary committee has to finalize. Coming to Honorable Stian Hazen, 
the proposal that comes from the business rescue on SAA is on the table for discussion. I have not even looked at it closely and it is going to be discussed. The, pro, the whole process is going to unfold and already Honorable Stienhazen, the government is on the hook for a good 16 million, uh, 16 billion rather, because it has guaranteed over a number of years. It's not last year, it's not the year before, over a number of years. The business rescue process has come to the conclusion that yes, those uh, guarantees have to be uh, honored. So already that liability has to be met in one form or shape. And we will be looking at that proposal proposal and seeing how best that can all be addressed in a way that will be able, yes, indeed, to take this country forward. All what we will be doing, Honorable Stian Hazen, is not to drive South Africa into a hole, it's to make sure that we continue to build an inclusive economy going forward. And it is possible that you may not agree with some of the things that are on the table. And it is possible that other political parties may not agree, but we've got to move South Africa forward. And it is to this end that Honorable Holomisa's suggestion is a very good one, so long as people will come forward with proposals. So I want to end, Honorable Speaker, in saying that this is the moment when those who have ideas, those who have proposals, should come forward with proposals. This is the moment when South Africa is yearning for those proposals so that we can move our country forward out of the COVID-19 hope. Thank you very much, Honorable Speaker. That concludes the questions to the President, and I thank you, Mr. President. Honorable members. Long live, President. Soldier Honorable Shabalala Kuzega. Honorable members, this concludes the business for the day and this sitting is adjourned. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.